Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. If we don't have being, we don't have anything. Being comes first. Even before all our purposes and our wants and our deeds, poetry is about the thrill of being. You know, a flower or a bird doesn't have to go do anything. It's a flower or a bird or whatever it is, a work of art, whatever, you know, a piece of music. It is what it is. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful part of life. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Good morning. I have a poem today to share. I'm so excited. Yes. This poem was shared with us by our guest for today, Baron Wormser. And we'll talk more about that later. But he sent it because during the interview, we had talked a lot about this topic. And so he shared this with us and I thought it was worth sharing with our audience today. The title of the poem is Convenience. And it is written by W.S. Merwin, who is an American poet of this century. And here we go. Convenience. We were not made in its image, but from the beginning we believed in it, not for the pure appeasement of hunger, but for its availability. It could command our devotion beyond question and without our consent. And by whatever name we've called it, in its name, love has been set aside. Unmeasured time has been devoted to it. Forests have been erased and rivers poisoned, and truth has been relegated for it. Wars have been sanctified by it. We believe that we have a right to it, even though it belongs to no one. We carry a way back to it everywhere. We are sure that it is saving something. We consider it our personal savior. All we have to pay for it is ourselves. By W.S. Merwin. Wow. All we have to pay for it is ourselves. Yeah. And you know, the topic of convenience comes up a lot in our conversations on this podcast. And it is a very, very interesting thing to turn around and talk about and unpack and unpeel. And so thank you, Baron, for sharing this poem with us. And we'll loop back to Baron, our guest, in a moment. But I think you have something else to talk about before we get into the episode today. I do. And I wanted to add to that poem, love the way that it frames convenience as a sacrifice, to think of something that we don't often think about. What are we sacrificing when we put convenience on a pedestal? Yes, I'm particularly struck by the line, we believe that we have a right to it. I think that's really something we're thinking about. It's confusing because as humans, we're so good at solving problems and we love being efficient. And I think that problem solving and then that sort of thing, that's so close to convenience. 
Oh, it is. And I like to say that, you know, humans are ingenious. We figure out ways to make things easier for ourselves. And so we come up with solutions. And then in many ways, the solutions become problems sometimes. So it's just, yeah, something to look at. Definitely. So yeah, so just to mention that this week, our membership pledge drive is launched and we're so excited to invite all of you to join, to participate in whatever way you are able in whatever capacity you're able. So we are looking for pledges, for monthly pledges to help keep the good dirt going to help support the show. We have a couple of ways that we're able to do that. And it is through your generous contributions as a listener. And then also when working with brands through sponsorships. And if you're a listener, you'll know that we do that occasionally. If the brand is a really good fit and you know, if it's some, a brand that we would really trust and a product we would use, that also means that we're very picky. So we don't want to have to rely on that to keep the show going. So that's why we have decided to do a membership pledge drive to get you all excited about supporting the show and just be really open and honest about everything it takes to run the show and how your contributions mean everything to us. So you'll go to our website. You'll see there's a few different tiers, a few different levels at which you can pledge monetarily. And we have a ton of great rewards in there based on your pledge level. As you can see, it sort of cooperates with the way that our current online membership platform is set up. This specific membership pledge is designed for, you don't have to to be a member, to participate, to do the things. This is just a pledge, a pledge of your support for the show. So that is really exciting. Yes, thank you. And it makes me think of in relation to this poem and the idea of convenience and things we talk about on this show a lot is just being thoughtful and intentional about things that we put our resources into and what we base our decisions on. And maybe an exercise to ask ourselves when we're thinking of purchasing things, are we making those decisions based on the idea of convenience or value to us or the world? So it's not anything to make you feel guilty. It's just a reminder to maybe think before we make our purchases to be intentional and try to get beyond the surface maybe a little bit and understand how we're making these decisions. Are we making these decisions based on this cultural idea of convenience and that we have a right to it? Or are we making these decisions about our purchases and where we're going to allocate our resources based on value, value to us and value to the world? And it's just a suggestion for something to think about. I love that. In other words, pledging to the Good Dirt podcast might seem really inconvenient, (laughs) but (laughs) it will add to your life in so many ways (laughs) and you will love it and feel great about it. (laughs) I love that. Another that reminds me of actually an interview that we did this week that won't be out for a few weeks. Our guest said that a while ago she made the decision to not buy anything because it's on sale. And that's something that I'm going to be thinking about in the convenience realm. Just, you know, you buy things when you need it. If it happens to be on sale, great. But I find myself falling into that trap, you know, when things are on sale. Oh, I guess that means I need it if it's on sale. So I like that exercise too. So yeah, to bring it back to the drive, these pledges, you know, it's not on sale. We're not running a sale. We are, however, sweetening the pot by offering some really fun 
good dirt pledge drive only rewards. So these things won't be available in the store. You can only get them by contributing to the podcast in this way. And if contributing monetarily is something that you are unable to do at the moment, there are so many other ways in which you can contribute and help us grow the show and spread the good dirt. So appreciate that a lot. Without further ado, we are excited to transition this wonderful episode with Baron Wormser. Would you like to introduce our guest? Yes, our guest today is Baron Wormser. He's an award-winning poet, professor, and author. We were introduced to Baron through his son, Owen Wormser, who you might remember from the Good Dirt episode 151, Lawns and the Meadows. And during this interview, we talked a lot about his off-grid upbringing in rural Maine. Owen also told us that his father had written a memoir of the family's experience entitled The Road Washes Out in Spring, A Poet's Memoir of Living Off the Grid. The book was originally published in 2005, but it was re-released earlier this year. And we were so taken with the story that we reached out to Baron to see if he would come on the show. And we're so grateful that he said yes. Baron has been an example of slow and sustainable living throughout his life and career and has brought his gift of storytelling to our conversation about such things as connecting poetry with how we live, the value of simple living, and how we connect with the earth. So thank you, Baron, for shining a light for all of us on these topics and for being with us today. So here is Baron Wormser, the author of The Road Washes Out in Spring. Baron Wormser. I'm a poet, writer. I lived out in Montpelier, Vermont. I'm here today to speak to a book I wrote about the, my experience and my family's experience of living off the grid in the Maine woods for over 23 years. That book is called The Road Washes Out. It's Spring, a Poet's Memoir of Living Off the Grid. Okay. And you kindly sent me your book a couple of months ago, and I've enjoyed reading it so much. The book itself is like a poem. It's very much a story of a way of life that not many people living on the planet know much about these days. So I would like to ask you, can you speak to some of the factors that went into your decision to do this and and what was sort of the timeline in your life you were you and your wife were young it was before you had kids i believe and so what informed this decision was there an aha moment that made you think we're going to do this okay well generationally we were part of the what has been called the back to the land movement of 1960s and 1970s in which uh, largely urban often educated people decided they had had enough of the urban experience and basically wanted to connect with the earth and and the rural world we were part of that we we had that we both my wife and i both had that enthusiasm to go do that that was about a lot of things i think it was obviously about a hankering to connect in in ways with the earth it was also a hankering for a kind of authenticity to be able to take care of ourselves in ways and to learn how to do that We really had no idea whatsoever of what we were getting ourselves into. I don't know how many people did. I'm I'm sure some did, but many did not. 
Consequently, many people left for understandable reasons. So we moved to the country. We, we were living in Maine, which was sort of just turned out that we were footloose and rented a house in Maine and we liked it like Maine and decided we wanted to stay. I figured out a way to earn a living. I, I was a school librarian. And that's, of course, a huge issue if you want to live in a rural area because it's not a big job market. So we got, you know, we had a grip on that. Then we bought land from an old mainer who literally collected land sort of like postage stamps in the 1930s. He just had land all over the state of Maine. He had land he never even laid eyes on. He lived in a kind of rundown house in a little town in Maine. We just heard about him, somewhat talking about him. This wasn't advertised or anything. He needed some cash. We bought about 40 acres for, I think it was $3,500. It was on a discontinued road, which means... Uh, <laughs> The road washes out in spring, if you want to call it a road, a road to begin with. But we were undeterred. We also didn't have much money, so the, the price was right. And it was a nice piece of land. It was on a dead-end road, which very much suited us. Beyond us was just miles and miles of woods. Nobody there. So that's that's sort of the background story of how we landed there. And then once we bought the land, we learned that the power company, Central Bay Power, wanted for us a sizable amount of money to run the poles in over a half mile. We could have done that. We were within a half mile. Part of our plot of land was within. But being the people we were, we, we preferred the house, the house site at the very edge of the land at the top of the hill, which was an old, an old house site, a house, you know, farmhouse that sat there in the 19th century. There was a cellar hole there. There was a, an elm tree, dead elm. And there was a dug well. And, you know, we much preferred that site. So we decided, what the heck? We'll just do without power. And so we did. Yeah. <laughs> for over 23 years without the power lines. So th that's sort of the background of the story. Did you think that, oh, we can add the power later if it gets to be a, an issue and it just never happened? Was it that kind of thing? That's exactly right. We thought, oh, well, we'll do this down the road, you know, and become regular people, so to speak. But we got, <laughs> we got used to it. Uh, it didn't seem like an imposition after we got used to it. It had a whole economy in the real sense of the word, not the economy like it's used in America now, but the economy in terms of the balances of living and paying attention to what you're doing and how you live. And it was pretty modest. I was saying, tell us what that looked like logistically for you, you know? Yeah, there was no backup heat. It meant if you wanted to be warm, you had to make a fire. There was uh, a cook stove, as they call it in Maine and other places, in the kitchen. And there was a little propane four-burner stove in the kitchen. And there was then a, a larger stove that we used for heat in the house. Eventually, we added on two bedrooms for our children. One of those bedrooms was Owen's. And we put a little stove in there. Heat was one thing you had to pay attention to if you wanted to be warm. And we were warm. It was a little modest size house. The bottom floor was 24 by 32, and then there was a sleeping loft. So it wasn't a big place. And so there was that water. Water came from a dug well with a pitcher pump in the house. Eventually, because we experienced drought a couple years, um, and we had to haul water for months. 
And so we got together the money and we drilled a well, which had, that had a pump on it too, a long-handled piston pump. You see them in state parks sometimes, they have these log handles and, you know, you get water up. But that still meant hauling water. We use that to water our garden bucket by bucket. So that kind of took care of water, outhouse. So that took care of, took care of that. We had kerosene lights. Eventually we had a, a propane light. You know, you have to fill the kerosene lamps and tend the wicks and pay attention to that. Food, we were pretty much vegetarian. So it wasn't a big deal. We hung a box from a trap door in the kitchen underneath the house. The house was built on piers. And that kept things reasonably cool. You know, we weren't stockpiling a lot of, you know, hamburger. So I worked every day. You know, I worked at a job. So and we went to the store once a week, a natural food store in a town nearby. Typically, our routine was do the laundry, buy food, do whatever errands that we needed to do in town. So this all became an economy. And then we, you know, we, we had gardens and we, we canned a certain amount of food. We had a root cellar eventually. The children's addition was built over the root cellar. It was a great root cellar. It was very deep in the earth. So we kept potatoes, cabbages, carrots, all that sort of thing throughout the winter. I don't, this may be more detailed than you're interested in. I don't know. No, it's great. I, I'm wondering what year did you move out there? Uh, so we were there from, let's say, what was it? Around 73 to 90, 97. Let's see, 74 to 97. That would be it. 74. Because our daughter had been born. She was born in 73. As you know, if you've read the book, Owen was born in the house in 75. So yeah. Yes, yes, that's a lovely story. And you know, it, it it's occurring to me that if this was the mid 70s, it was only like a half century or less since people in the backwoods, I imagine in Maine, and certainly I know in areas where I grew up in Southern Appalachia, where people didn't have power, you know, much before the mid 1930s. So, you know, we talk about this lifestyle as something so foreign and outdated when really it was not that long after that's the way people used to live out in the country. Yeah. Some of the old timers, you know, they really got a kick out of us that way. You know, here we were, we were becoming old timers ourselves, even though the times had changed. We had embraced that. Now, obviously, they, you know, they thought we were a little cracked in ways to go do this. But, you know, as I said, they kind of got a kick out of it. And of course, they knew a lot of things about how, how to live. Cause you're right. That's how they had lived. Our neighbor, you know, was born around the turn of the 20th century. So there was a whole, kind of historical side to the whole thing. And I write about that in the book, all these cellar holes and people had lived here and the woods had grown up. And, you know, our, our neighbor's father, he was, that was the 19th century when he was, you know, he was something like a boy. He might have seen Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> so nothing seemed very long ago in a way, you know. So you're right. Yes. Yeah. And Another thing that I noticed, especially reading through your book and, and your routines and the tasks, just to live day to day, things that to the outside world and to people living with all the modernization might think, oh, that's really hard. That's just so inconvenient or and all those things that we might think. 
you and your family just very quickly assimilated and normalized these things so that it, it, it wasn't like, oh, this is such a hardship. This is just your way of life. And as a poet, these are your observations, I think. As I'm reading the book, I sort of see how these, these are your observations that these simple tasks that bring us light and help us heat up our food and help us keep warm are the poetry of your life there. And you make poetry of it and you, cause you're a poet <laughs> and you show other people. Now through your memoir, these things like not having a telephone, it was just normal for you. And it created an opportunity for you all to live life through the simple tasks and through the necessary things that sustained you. And I think that's what people are so attracted to these days, the idea of slow living, like doing things simply, bypassing conveniences in order to experience just these everyday things that are the simple life. I agree. There's a great poem, maybe you know it, by uh, W.S. Merwin called Convenience. Basically, you know, we're destroying the earth in the name of convenience, basically. Uh, that, that's what's going on. And we think we're entitled to that convenience, and we don't think at whose expense that convenience comes from. So for all this connection we have, in fact, we're extremely disconnected. And obviously, you know, as you're pointing out, Mary, you know, if we don't have being, we, we don't have anything. Being comes first. Even before all our purposes and our wants and our needs, which obviously is part of our problem, we can't, we take all our wants and declare them to be needs. They're not. <laughs> They're not. That's not true. That's not true. You may want to go to Europe four times this year. That's not a need. You may want four flat screen TVs in your house. That is not a need. But for many reasons, obviously, one is it's just promoted. We're in that place where that's how we, we look at life. And consequently, that, as you point out, Mary, that, that gives us a very strange sense of hardship. If you can't take a hot shower every morning, is that a hardship? I don't think so. I don't think so. That's really interesting to think about what we define as need and hardship and what that really means and how we qualify that. And I wonder in your personal experience living off the grid and in your full and vibrant life, what are some of the things that you at one point might've thought as, oh, that's a hardship and I could never do that. I could never handle that. That's too much. And then you realized that it wasn't a hardship and that you could deal with it. And then opposite, I guess, what's something that I mean, we're speaking to you right now on a computer. So now that you don't live off grid, what's something that you really wouldn't want to go back to? Honestly, the answer is I didn't experience anything in living that way that felt, you know, somehow I can't do without it. I guess the overall sense of it was so strong in terms of what it offered to us, in terms of just that unmediated quality of being there, that you know, the hot water, whatever, nothing was really that big a deal. And on the other side, right now, if this computer disappeared this, you know, this afternoon, I could live. It's not that big a deal. If the hot water goes, whatever, 
it's really not for me. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, I respect people. They are who they are. You know, I know people, if they couldn't have a hair dryer, they, you know, that's it. You know, I was never like that. There are all these old ways of doing things and they worked. People, <laughs> goodness gracious, people lived a long time on earth. They seemed to, you know, be living. They didn't have all the things that we have, you know. Our adaptability as human beings is clearly a two-edged sword. In one way, it's obviously part of our genius. In another way, it's it's not a, it's not good at all because we adapt to all these things, and then we say we have to have them. I just wrote an essay that was published a week or two ago about cobalt mining in the Congo. Cobalt's in every smartphone on the planet. The people who are doing that mining are just virtual slaves who are being worked to death. We don't need those phones. They didn't exist. We don't need them. But, you know, we all want them. So that, that's, that's a good example of a want that seems to be a need to people. So. Right. Well, it's making me think that we, we feel like we need them. We think that we need them because the, so it's um, like the majority of people because we we perceive that I'm using air quotes most of the world and the people around us ha- do have phones and a lot of a lot of systems do rely on these phones so in order to participate in a way if you define it that way in order to participate in that system we kind of do need them and then it's a choice of then it's a choice of participation and if you don't participate then where does that leave you so it's a very interesting question you know, the want versus need. And I think that where we draw that line personally and collectively is really interesting and also really difficult. I have a real personal example of exactly what you're saying. We've been out here in a rural area for the last 10 years. It's not that far removed. I mean, we're only 24 miles from the White House in Washington, D.C. So it's not like we're we're remote rural Maine or anything like that. We've never had real internet until about two months ago, there was a federal grant that finally brought us fiber optic internet. And this was an incredible boon to what I do, podcasting and and our business, which is largely online. So those years, it, it felt like such a struggle to us. I had to go other places when we needed to record something. I was always having to go down into Washington, D.C. to Emma's house when I needed dependable internet. And I I whined and complained about it a lot, admittedly. But in the end, I always thought there was this kind of underlying joke about the whole thing because, you know, when I was growing up, the internet was what? Nobody ever heard of it. It wasn't a word. If someone had said, this is the way things are going to be in 30 years, we would have called that science fiction. And you talked, you speak of the adaptability of humans. It's like we adapt so quickly when it makes things so-called easier for us and is so, you know, creates so-called solutions to things that we see as hardships. And then we create entire systems around them. We create entire economies around them, like the internet, for instance. And then you take that away, and then we feel like we have no framework. So what you experienced out there in the woods was you were taken back to the original framework of just living day to day with nature and the gifts of nature. So I think that's really profound, and it's just really something to think about. And also, as we've already said, it just wasn't that long ago at all that everybody lived this way. So I'm very curious curious. During your time of living and raising a family out there, you had one child when you moved there and your son was born there in the house. 
And so you were raising them. And I understand they went to school during the day when they got of age and, and you drove to a job. Did you ever feel like your children were missing anything or there was anything that they weren't being prepared for by living that way or growing up that way? It's obviously a very particular experience. And so it's not comparable to whatever you think of as the standard experience. You know, I'm a writer. My wife's painter. I was a librarian. So books were always a huge part of our household. We had a piano in that house. We also had a boombox connected to a car battery. We could listen to Bruce Springsteen in that house. So we didn't obviously have TV, but you know, we've never had TV, even when we have electricity. I'm not very interested in television. So we had a radio, listen to the Red Sox on the radio. So it wasn't that extreme. I think the whole techno thing has become much more extreme with the phones and the internet in the last 30 years. It just wasn't like that. Obviously, when you grow up that way, there's a degree of, you know, isolation that you experience. But, you know, on the other hand, that that offers you something in terms of being able to be by yourself and not be terrified of being lonely in the way a lot of people are terrified of being lonely. And they're terrified if they're not connected. You know, if you say to someone, you have to go out in the woods and live for a day or two, you know, to a lot of people, that's, you might as well push them out of a 12 story window. That's not what they're looking to do in this world. So I don't, I don't really think that was really an issue in terms of, you know, what was missing along those lines. Did they go to school and they come back and would they say, well, the other kids have this or that or live this way? Would they register any discontent or impatience with the lifestyle? Or, or what was their reaction to being around other children that lived a very different way? Well, yeah, that's true. But again, it was rural Maine. So we're not talking, you know, an upscale part of the world. You know, it was rural Maine. Basically, that part of Maine is at the northern tip of Appalachia. It runs up into Maine there. So, I mean, we had a car, you know, and it was a better car than some people had, honestly. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't like that, honestly. There were other family, there are a couple other families in our town where they lived off the grid. We weren't the only people. I mean, I imagine at that point in time, most rural small towns in Maine had at least one or two families living off the grid. It was part of, I mean, I knew people who lived in places that made our place seem like we were living on a highway, you know, in terms of, you know, <laughs> trekking through the woods to get to their place. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that, that big a deal that way. So your children didn't experience that much contrast when they went to school or around other children. To them, it was just part of the spectrum that they saw all around them. Yeah, absolutely. I see. Okay, that's wonderful. Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, 
Nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. This is kind of going to be a vague, broad question, but do you have any stories you can tell us about like a specific story, whether it's something that was really joyous and funny or something that was really hard and challenging that can sort of paint a picture of what life might have been like? Well, you know, sort of the the foundational story of the whole thing, which I, you know, write about in, in The Road Washes Out in Spring, is how we built the house, which was, um, I mean, we just didn't know a thing. We believed as college-educated people, we could read a book and it would tell us what to do. We were extremely short on practical experience. I mean, we knew what a hammer and a saw was. That's about it. So, but nonetheless, we resolved to do this and we read books and we, we ordered a sort of log cabin kit kind of house. And, and we were up there pouring cement for the piers for the house. And this guy showed up who would live down the road. And I called Caleb in the book. He just kind of looked around and, you know, said, uh, looks like you're, <laughs> he had that understated main humor, you know, like, looks like you're building something here. And indeed we were. And it rained a lot that June when we started the house. So the road was just awful. It wasn't good to begin with. It got worse. And, you know, we, we, we had these holes dug and they immediately filled up with water. There are frogs leaping around all over the place. They were having a great time. This guy said, uh, oh, it's nice you're building this house. Uh, you think you'd like some help? <laughs> and we, we, my wife and I looked at each other, you know, for five seconds and said, yeah, we would like some help. And I said, well, I, you know, I, I'm a carpenter. I'm a builder. I live around the corner. I could help you do this. So uh, we talked some about what we were doing, and, and we shook hands, and that's how the house got built. Obviously, it was, it was a relatively simple house, but we never talked money, which is pretty amazing. We had taken out of extremely modest mortgage to build the house, but we never, never talked money. And when he came up there the first day, and he showed up, you know, literally 6, 6.30 in the morning, because he, he got up, ate a bowl of oatmeal, he had a huge clan, a huge family. So a couple of his, uh, it must have been, well, one was an in-law, one was a nephew, one was a grandson. They were, one was a crackerjack carpenter. They helped him build the house. It was a complicated house. <laughs> and he wasn't the world's, uh, you know, he wasn't a finished carpenter. As I, as I quote him in the book, he used to say, close enough, spike it. He never worried about a sixteenth of an inch or anything like that. And that was fine. The house got built just fine. That's kind of the, the foundational story that sort of set the tone. So we sort of lived under the aura, so to speak, of people like Caleb, who was a really good-hearted person and extremely hardworking. 
And my wife and I were hardworking. And so people we were around who, even though we were strange in terms of what we did and who we were coming from away, as they say, they respected work. And clearly we worked. <laughs> we worked plenty. You know, as I said, we never resented the work, but we worked, you know, to take care of ourselves. People respected that. That would be a story of our being there. I also enjoyed the some of the, the stories uh, the different neighbors you had and, and your interactions with them and personalities involved and the, the type of people that existed in this type of world. And so could you speak to some of your neighbors? Well, yeah, our, our immediate neighbors, Stanton and Ella, as I call them in the book, that, that, they lived in that farmhouse once Ella married Stanton, you know, for whatever, over a half century, well over. Stanton was, that's where he grew up. And I, you know, he was born around the turn of the 20th century. So, so really, in many ways, they were from the 19th century in terms of who they were and what their values were. Stanton farmed and then had to give it up because basically all the improvements after World War II to dairy farming put him out of business. He went to work at a sawmill. So they were, they were truly old New England. They were very private people. They were not. <laughs> They were not emotionally forthcoming, to put it mildly, but they were really good. They were good people. They were upright. They were decent people. They could be plenty censorious. They had no problem doing that. But, you know, again, they're very hardworking and they were, they were really wholesome in a way in terms of this whole economy of taking care of yourself. That's who they were. The wife, Ella, grew, I don't know, I want to say hundreds of gladiolas, okay? So she loved flowers. She loved glads. That was the delight of her life. Also hollyhocks out in front of the house. She would have a couple old tires out. She'd put a pot in and plant geraniums in them. She had geraniums growing in Maxwell House coffee cans. So, so there was, there were all these touches of what we would call beauty about their place. It was extremely modest. They didn't have much money. What I said about, you know, money in rural Maine is very real. But, you know, that was their world. They were very attuned to it. They showed you the good side of it and the hard side of it, because it could be isolating. You could be provincial. You could sort of turn the world off at large, narrow, the way you could be narrow in rural circumstances. So that was part of it. We were never inclined to romanticize the whole thing who they were. But we also were appreciative of who they were as people. And they did sort of offer a window into what I think this country once was in terms of its rural character and the people who lived there, the people who were, when this country was rural more in the 19th century, who were the backbone of the country. So their fate, which obviously most of them, you know, you know, most people who homesteaded, I don't know what the statistic is, but most homesteads failed, often in desperate situations, people committing suicide, families breaking up, hard things. And both our neighbors' uh, sons, they didn't live there. They moved away. They didn't want to live there. Well, I thought so much about what Wendell Berry writes about, you know, the disappearance of this type of life across America. You were seeing the taillights of that in your time out there and the, the people that had been there and were going to, you know, they were going to pass on, 
yeah, and the culture was going to move on to whatever was next. So it's just really, really fascinating observations about the people that you were around and the relationship with money, the relationship with the neighbors. You point out that it wasn't necessarily all warm and fuzzy either. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Terrible things happened. You know, I write about it in the book in our little town, just awful, awful violence in, in there. All these things that you know about domestic abuse, that was there. So much for the romanticizing of it. But at the same time, your portrayal of, of just the beauty and the poetry of the ordinary day-to-day -day life. I want to read a quote from the book that really struck out to me. I read the book with a pencil in my hand because there were so many things I needed to underline. It was amazing. And it was very slow going, let me tell you, because I kept reading over things. <laughs> but it was like it was like reading an extended poem. And you are a poet, so it does make sense. But here's the quote. The ordinary was, of course, hardly ordinary. Who could imagine in his or her head even a fraction of what any acre of any woods or field held? So I just love that so much. Thank you. And, and that that's really the heart of an extremely large matter. You know, honestly, uh, Owen basically describes the human race by and large at this point in time as ecological illiterates. And unfortunately, that's true. And, you know, we're paying what looks like a catastrophic price for that illiteracy. I mean, you know, if I could remake any school curriculum, the first thing would be the earth and everything would connect to the earth that got taught. <laughs> everything. What is the foundation for all this? You know, obviously the earth. And obviously there's so much that we don't, we don't have any idea what is going on. You know, the way, um, what's this? E.O. Wilson said, you know, what we need are just endless number of natural scientists out there to help us understand what is going on on the earth. So yeah, it's, it's true, I think. Owen's one of them. Owen's one of the natural scientists that are showing people the necessity and also the accessibility of letting these things be restored, or at least leaving the opportunity open for them to be restored I'm doing a lot of it here in, in my own space and on my own property. And given the guidance that I've gotten from Owen, from talking to Owen and some other people that are in doing similar things, it's very exciting to me. Okay, I want to read another quote. And this pertains to what we were talking about. The tasks of every day are so different from whatever people that live in the modern world and they have all their water and heat and electricity and all those things are provided by them. So what are they doing? And while you guys are in the woods, you know, creating all those things for yourself or your day-to-day -day sustenance. So here's the quote. Now people strove to justify their existence on their own, as if the energy of mental and physical efforts could provide metaphysical solace. I am busy, therefore I exist. I think that's so interesting because for the most part, most of us who are fortunate enough you know, we have access to food. We have access to all these things. So what do we do with ourselves? We get busy because we want to prove that we exist. So that's the way I understood that. I agree. I mean, you know, that's the all-purpose answer. When you ask people about what they're up to, they say they're busy. Okay. <laughs> you know, what are you busy about? What are you busy doing? This world doesn't ask us to be busy. I mean, it's funny with Owen's gardens because you don't have to be busy. Nature knows what she's doing. 
She's been around longer than you have. You know, I tell my writing students, the world is bigger than your head. You might not believe me, but, you know, try to go with it. So, yeah, so we, we substitute all this, you know, essentially random energy, you know, to justify our being here. And our being here isn't not about justification. You know, that's not what it's about. So I'm happy you focused on that because it's a it's a pretty big issue for human beings. Yeah, I wanted to hear about what it was like to come back on grid after that time. And at what point did you do that, I guess? Yeah, well, of course, I went to work. I, I was a librarian, but that meant I dealt with a lot of AV stuff. So I dealt with cameras and, you know, computers when they were coming in. And my wife was a nurse for many years, worked in a you know, hospital setting. So it's not like we were primitive in that way. In terms of reentry, I, I guess there are two things. One's kind of, one's kind of funny. We didn't have anything that everybody has. So, you know, we bought a house in, in a town. We didn't have anything. So we went to Sears. And we, you know, we bought a washing machine. We bought a dryer. We bought a refrigerator. And the guy in the hard, the appliances department just, I thought he was just going to die of joy, you know? Because <laughs> we just walked around and said, we'll take one of these. We'll take one of these. So finally, at the end, he said, you know, this is a true story. He said, you know, if you buy one more thing, I get a bonus. So I, I, don't, I think we bought a vacuum cleaner or something, you know, that we didn't have. You made his day. <laughs> it was a really funny. We made his day. And, you know, uh, someone said like an anthropologist should have followed us around that day in Sears, you know, like we were just kind of gawking, asking all these questions like, what? The, uh, I guess the main thing, honestly, is... um. Hot water is pretty nifty, even more than light. It's very handy. So that was kind of, you know, whatever you want to call it, pleasure, having hot water. But otherwise, as I say, you know, we had music, we had books, we had each other. <laughs> I mean, that's a huge part of all this, honestly. I just don't think we mean as much to each other anymore as human beings, honestly. I think the machines have imposed themselves between all of us. So as much as we talk about being connected, I honestly feel there's a way people needed each other more and wanted to be with each other in ways more than we're not like that now. And obviously what we went through with the virus all over the planet, I think has, has made that even whatever you want to call it, worse. I guess that's what I'd say about so-called re-entry. But I have to say, it's not like we were all excited. It was just, this is how the world lives. So, okay, we can do it too. After all, we did do it when we were first married. Did you just reach a point where it just felt like your life in the woods had just come to a natural conclusion or? Well, but it was a natural conclusion. Part of it was that clearly the old people were dying off. That way of life that our sort of mentors gave us wasn't really on there the way it was there when we first came to it. And it was just plain. It had sort of done what it could do for us. We were never attached to it. And I think you understand that for ideological reasons. We weren't out to impress people with our virtue. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't trying to, we weren't trying to impress people with our purity. That was never ever what it was about. So consequently, it wasn't it wasn't some kind of ideological decision to leave. You know, we were still our kids went off into their lives. My wife and I were still still married, and we were the people we were in terms of what we cared about. 
you know, we transferred that, so to speak, to wherever we've lived. We've moved three times since the woods. The basic thing is, even though, you know, we live the way we live, is, and I think you understand this very well, is you're on the earth, period. And whether you're in a city or country, you're on the earth. I mean, that's what Owen's book is sort of reminding people. Hey, you're on the earth. You can do this. You got two feet. You can do this, you know, of ground. And obviously all that's going on, it's a planet. It's not all the possessiveness makes us, you know, all crazy that way. Because this is my lot and that's your lot. And this is your house and my house. This is my country. This is your country. Well, obviously, the earth, that's not what they're about. There's no wall between Canada and the United States to stop the smoke as much as some people are enamored of walls out there. So far, we don't really quite get that or, you know, so-called civilized people do. Obviously, you know, so-called native people have gotten that for thousands of years on the planet, but they have been obviously pushed aside by uh, the forces of so-called progress. So, wow, you just answered the whole next question I was going to (laughs) ask. You got it all in there, but I I do want to ask you, where do you see hope that we'll be able to shift the paradigm here? That's not who I am, honestly. I'm not about hope. I believe it's really wonderful to be here every second you're here in terms of being on Earth. And that's it. I don't think there are any promises made to the human race. As far as I can tell, the human race has never particularly known what to do with itself. All you have to do is pick up the paper and it shows you pretty much, you know. So that's, you know, that's the way it is. And there are all these great things. There's still spring and dogs and flowers and, you know, all these wonderful things. That seems to me sufficient, honestly, in terms of being grateful and enjoying it. I mean, someone told me a story recently, someone in her 90s, and she couldn't, she pretty much couldn't see, couldn't hear. And this guy was taking care of her, said, how do you feel today? And she said, I feel magnificent. I'm breathing. There's a lot to that, to put it mildly. So, you know, I have to take pains with this, too, because if you say that to a lot of people, they feel you're automatically a curmudgeon. I'm not a curmudgeon. I mean, poetry is about the thrill of being. That's what it's about. You know, a flower or a bird doesn't have to go do anything. It's a flower or a bird or whatever it is, a work of art, whatever, you know, a piece of music. It is what it is. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful part of life, you know? You know, you think someone has beautiful blue eyes. I mean, that's that's something very real right there. So all this, you know, this notion of hope, and and the flip side is then it, it tends to make us dishonest, honestly. That we don't want to look anything in the face because we have, quotes, hope. It seems the least we could try to do is be honest, particularly since a lot of other life depends on us, you know, in terms of the creatures and the plants and all that's on Earth that's trying to live on Earth. If we were honest, then... That would seem to me to be an important value as opposed to walking around with our heads full of something called hope. So that's my two cents about it. (laughs) That's pretty cool. It is. I would like to say that you offer hope to me personally by seeing poetry in everything. And you also shine an honest light on the world as it is. And to me personally, that is hopeful. Yeah. So I hope... I hope that's okay with you that I see hope that's in your okay. poems. <laughs> Far be it from me to be authoritarian about that. So, yeah. 
Well, I think if more people could look through that lens of this is the world around us, this is the way it is, and then they can fall in love. They can fall in love with the world and the earth. It's been said on here many times before. When you love something, you take care of it. That's deeply true. Deeply true. (laughs) So this might sound redundant, Baron, but we talk a lot about slow living on this podcast. And part of our mission is to help inspire others to explore slow living and figure out what that means to them. And so I guess I want to ask you, yeah, what does slow living mean to you? And how do you find slow living in your everyday? I think it's what Mary was just talking about. It's about taking the time to care. If you're going to do something, whatever it is, it's about trying to take the time to care. And pretty much every day is filled with all kinds of occasions for us to slow down and care about whatever it is that we're doing. We haven't even talked today about food, really, particularly, and cooking, which has been at the heart of the life that my wife and I have led, whether we're off the grid or on the grid, and the care that goes into raising food, taking care of food, cooking food. To me, that that all wants to be slow. I mean, after all, no food, no anything. We're, We're creatures of appetite for better and for worse. So the more we slow down and respect that, you know, respect that caring, to me, the fuller our lives become as far as just being here and taking in all the miraculous quality of, of that we get to experience by being in this world. So that's, that's what I would say about, about slow living. Thank you. Yes, slow food is certainly an integral part of slow living. And it, that's, a, that's a whole topic that we love to embrace here as well. The next question also overlaps with that, and it's something we ask all of our guests. What does the good dirt mean to you? And of course, you can answer that literally or metaphorically or any way that comes to mind. Well, you know, Robert Frost uh, wrote about build soil. And that that clearly is, again, one of the crucial human enterprises has been for thousands of years is to build soil. And, you know, uh, obviously, Wendell Berry's written about this eloquently as have others. That's a central value. Good dirt is a central value. And that wants to be respected, ideally, by everyone. Again, no dirt, no anything. And so building soil in whatever ways we could do that. I mean, I have friends in New York City who grow, you know, basil, you know, whatever herbs on a fire escape. They're building a little soil there in their way. They're, they're participating. That clearly should be part of every child's education is to learn about building soil. That's just way more important than technology because it's an, you know, it's ancient and we don't have anything without the soil. So good dirt is, you know, it's a great phrase because it's, it's real. It's real. And you don't have to move off grid or move to a farm or own a hundred acres or any acres to have a relationship with it. Absolutely. Thank you. (laughs) What do you think that through your writing and our time here together, what would you like people to most understand about your work and your message in the world? It's tried to be all of a piece in terms of, you know, what I talked 
about about poetry and the thrill of being and to me the gratitude it's wonderful there's books behind me it's wonderful that there is poetry it's existed for thousands of years it's another thing that should be in the heart of every school it's not you know that's really my message it's not as i said it's not about um <laughs> virtue or goodness or anything like that you know i'm just another person but i think i think there's there's a great deal to that because it does simplify in ways that make sense, basically. And we all want to make sense of being in this world. The more we can root that in actualities like poetry, song, dirt, food, whatever, I have to believe the better off we are. Thank you so much, Baron. I've enjoyed this conversation so much, and it has really filled me up. <laughs> yeah, it's been so lovely to talk to you. You're reading your book, the road washes out in spring has been like a meditation for me. And I really appreciate it. And I'm, so, I'm grateful for your work in the world. And I'm grateful for your voice, grateful for your experience, and grateful that you brought Owen into the world to bring the next generation into more consciousness and intentionality about their relationship with the land as well. So many, many thanks. Well, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure to meet you two today. It's very heartening to learn about what you're up to. You know, I, I appreciate it. So you're welcome, and thanks for you being who you are. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.